All right. Thank you, Ham. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Pasquale. Missy's on vacation, I guess, today, so she's not with us. But uh, these guys did a pretty good job, don't you think? We'll let them hang around, I guess. Passable. Yeah, I understand that feeling. Well, it's good to see you this morning. I was telling the early service, welcome to June. Hard to believe, right? Birthdays are in June, just saying. So um, it's okay. Some of you are some of you are smart. You caught you caught that. Good. It is good to see you all. Though it's good to be with you this morning. Quite a few things to to bring you up to speed on. Uh, youth will be back gathering tonight at 6 p.m. So guys, make sure you're here with that. We've been really enjoying our our time together. If you've been on the walking crew, you know that that's happening on Fridays at 9 a.m. If you've got time and you want to get some exercise, uh, join them here at the church at 9 a.m. on Fridays. And then uh, Thea and Neil are working on a movie and dinner night, Hot Dogs, right? This is an outside movie on June the 18th, not this Friday, but next Friday coming up. Uh, Still working on the actual movie and what that's going to be, but uh, it's designed to be an outreach for us. So if you have friends that you want to bring or know people that might enjoy it with their families, make sure that you, you let them know about it. Story time also at the playground has moved from Saturdays to Monday evenings at 7 p.m. Okay, I guess the crowd was a little less on, on the Saturday mornings and so hoping that this is going to be another opportunity to uh, reach folks. And so just always want to thank Neil and Thea for their continual effort and energy they put into trying to do things around here and making things happen. And so thank you guys for, for what you're doing. It really does make a difference. We often refer to Thea as our never-ending idea machine. And uh, she's just really good about that. And okay, good. Yeah. Need more readers. Okay. Younger or older, more readers. And uh, all of this, again, is a way designed to reach the community. And so, uh, praise the Lord. So, if nothing else, please be praying about this so that you can uh, be a part of that and we can see God do some great things there. Uh, also, this was exciting. I thought we finally were able to get the books that you had brought in, or most of you brought in, down to the ministry in Lynchburg on Monday. And uh, when we dropped those off, the man was telling us that they had just completed an order or was able to put in an order with the printing company for 50,000 Bibles. Uh, of I don't know how long they had been raising that. I don't think very long. That didn't include anything that we had just brought them. Uh, but the ministry is designed to take books from of any sorts, really, and sell them on Amazon, and then they take the proceeds of that, and it all goes right back into the printing of Bibles. And so 50,000, it's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that exciting? To, I think I was sharing with the Wednesday night crowd that that was what was happening, but just want to let you know that as well. So thank you for being a part of that. It's, a, it's an ongoing thing. I may even have uh, uh, Brother Mays come up here and share the ministry with us so you can get a firsthand uh, look from his perspective of this. And uh, when you think about ministries doing something like that, you think it's going to be a large ministry, but it really is not. It's just uh, everyday folks just like us, just doing their simple part, and God is magnifying it. I can only imagine what it's going to be like in heaven when those folks get there and get their reward as they've just been a part of putting Bibles out in the world. I just think that God is going to use that greatly. If you got my email this week, you know that I put in there with one of the devotions about my brother-in-law, Frankie. I was able to see him on last Monday, and I hadn't seen him since the fall, and he recognized me right away. I walked up to the car, and he said, hey, Bruce, how you doing? (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness, it hadn't changed at all. He's still unable to walk on his own, but it's just such a miracle. And I had such a good time where we were, and and recognize so many people, and it's just, just a tremendous blessing. So thank you for your prayers. 
God has certainly been hearing them and, and honoring Brendan and Frankie in that way and Jacob. So uh, it's just a real blessing. Some of you remember Wayne and Liz Dooley. They were here the other day and uh, doing very well. They were longtime members of the church and have uh, left the United States, are now in the Dominican Republic serving the Lord there. And they look great. They really do. I saw Wayne and I said, man, you look great. And uh, Wayne has had double knee replacement in the last several years. And Liz has had long years of battling cancer. And uh, she told me that uh, she didn't even tell Wayne this, but um, she, didn't, uh, she didn't want to tell him she had not had the money to pay for her cancer medicines. They're now just living off their Social Security, and, which is more than enough in the Dominican. But um, she said, for a year and a half, I didn't have any of my medicines. And the doctor kept after me about coming to get tested. And so she finally went at his request and came back into the room after the testing was done and uh, said, Liz, I don't know what to tell you, but your numbers are perfect. And so it's just, a, again, a praise to the Lord. Isn't it exciting to have these kind of testimonies as God just continually does his work? And many of you are the same way, right? You can say the same thing about what God has done for you. Well, we still are in need around here of some workers uh, with our children's ministry. And then uh, we really need somebody who can also work with our 20-somethings age group or that crowd that's post high school and moving into that phase of life that can uh, really pour their energy into them. And so uh, if you know of someone or you have an interest in that, let us know and I would be glad to oblige you with that if it works out. I want to show you a little video now of uh, just a simple minute long video and then uh, we'll get started in the message. Before I met Jesus, I was truly the definition of lost. I always felt that I was underhanded by the cards I was dealt, so I became very angry over that. Um, I tried to take the world on alone. I lost everything, my children, my home, uh, job, everything. I became strung out on drugs and homeless. And one day in a hotel parking lot, I called my old boss, my friend Phil Walpole, and uh, right there in the parking lot, I got down on my knees and cried, and we said the prayer together, and I gave my life to Christ. I immediately thought that, you know, he would come fix everything. That is not at all how it happened. Um, so the next day I went to jail um, for a good little while. I got out of jail, continued my walk with God, and with his help, I got my life back. I got more than my life back. Walking with Jesus now, I mean, I truly have peace in my heart, you know, even in the midst of the storm. That peace, that knowing that God is walking with you, it's it's the greatest feeling in the world. It truly is. All right. Thank you, Christy. Well, let's pray together. Father, we say this all the time because it's really true that it is a blessing to be a part of your family. As we hear testimonies like this young man, someone we don't even know at all, someone I've certainly never met, uh, we have an immediate connection because we know what he's talking about. And we know that you are a God who changes hearts and changes lives. As we look into your word today, we pray that you would be working in us and any soul that might be here in the sound of my voice, the watching online or whatever, if they don't know you intimately and personally as, your, as their saving Lord, I pray that today would be the day. Lord, this is what you came for, to rescue sinners. And so, Lord, we give this time to you and pray that you would use my voice now and my mind and my thoughts uh, to clearly display your word to the best of my ability. Lord, may the hearers hear truth 
and follow you, not just out of uh, a begrudging kind of concept, but because they have a heart that's been changed. And so we give this time to you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you haven't gathered, uh, today I want to talk about a new life. That's the title of the message this morning, A New Life, and what that really is all about. So stand with me as we read in our text today, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wineskin into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. All right. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. So... This is a challenging section of text to go through just because it doesn't seem to connect with any uh, clarity to the passages around it. But I think you'll see that it really does once you study through it. So I've divided this into two parts. One is a new way of thinking and then also a new way of acting. Those two parts, a new way of thinking and a new way of acting. And I think if you put those two subpoints together, you're going to see more clearly what Jesus is talking about. Let's, but let's go back to the context here because that's always critical as we are wanting to understand what God is doing. You will know and remember, most of you, that teachers in Jesus' day had followers. Uh, students, just like any other teacher would have students. Uh, these were people who would literally give up their lives to follow the teacher. They became apprentices, if you will, learning from the master and only that master. You know, to be an apprentice to someone doesn't mean that you're going around to various places. Now, it could be in a setting that that happens, but typically speaking, and especially in the days of Jesus, when someone wanted to learn a trade or something that was valuable for them for life, they would spend all of their time and energy and effort learning that particular skill or that trade from the master teacher. And so in this case, spiritually speaking, it was not uncommon for a teacher to have disciples, a learner, or if you want to remember it that way, like an apprentice. And because John the Baptist was also a teacher, he had followers as well, or students, disciples, if you will. But you remember in Matthew 4, we studied this some time ago, in verse 12 specifically, John is put in prison because he has condemned Herod for taking his own brother's wife to be just that, as his own wife. And uh, as a result, John is put in prison, and many of the disciples turn and start following Jesus at that particular point because John had told them that's what needed to happen. He had told them he was not the Christ, that he was simply the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the herald, if you remember us talking about that. And you see that in Matthew 3.1, who had come to prepare the way for the king. And that was very contextual there as well for the people. They would have understood the job of a herald as the king was making his way into the city. And so now that the Messiah or the king is on the scene, John's rolls over and his followers now need to go and follow the king now that he is here. And in John chapter 3, we have a beautiful picture of John's heart in all of this. And many of you know it probably by heart yourself. But let me just read it for us beginning in verse 28. 
He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, John talking about himself. So this joy of mine has been made full. In other words, my work has been completed. And so in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That is such a wonderful passage of Scripture and just helps us to see into the heart of John so, so clearly. The, the heart of a true follower of Jesus will be someone who so wants to magnify and elevate the Lord himself and decrease themselves. I just love that. Now, all of that background is why Matthew says what he does in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him. So I gave you all that so that you'd understand the context here of what Matthew's writing. Now, I'm sure some of them had heard of Jesus and begun to be inquisitive, no doubt, like the others that we've talked about and all who, what Jesus was doing. Uh, certainly overjoyed, I can only imagine, as John has now told them to go follow the Messiah. So there must have been a great joy in their hearts over it. But evidently still puzzled about what's really going on here and who Jesus really is. And we get that from verse 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now that's an interesting question and a confusing question for us, but for them it wouldn't have been a confusing question. Because the purpose behind their question was not to challenge, but really one of curiosity and, and mostly misunderstanding. They just didn't follow what was happening here in their context. And the reason is, is because the Jewish law required there to be fasting once a year. That was essential. It was that time of year that's called the time of atonement, when the high priest would go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and he would offer the yearly sacrifice on the mercy seat as God would receive it as forgiveness of sins. In fact, let me just show you this on the screen for those of you that may not be familiar with it. I know we've talked about the tabernacle lots of times, but it's always good to be refreshed in our minds. Starting here to the right of the screen, you'll see the first blue curtain. That was the entrance into what was known as the holy place where the table of showbread, you see that against the wall there, and the, the candelabra, the candlestick, and then the, in front of the second curtain was the, the uh, altar of incense. And so that was a place that was more regularly gone into, but only once a year would the high priest go behind the second veil into where the Ark is, the Ark of the Covenant. That's not the one that, uh, what's his name, found in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is the real one, okay? Um, so it was there that the high priest would go. And on that day, God required of the people to fast. And so the fasting was a common thing for them. In fact, this is understood in Leviticus 16. So let's just read that together as uh, we look at the commandment from the Old Testament. This shall be a permanent statue for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns with you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. Now, you may be saying, well, I don't see anything about fasting in there. I thought you said that fasting was required. Well, the phrase, humble your souls, 
meant just that. It didn't mean fasting necessarily, but it meant to refrain from something pleasurable. That was the idea behind it. And so, what else do you have to do in Israel but eat? I'm being silly there. But, you know, food is pleasurable. And so it was common that the people would abstain from food. And that was a very known thing. On the Day of Atonement is a day of fasting because of what the law writes here. Where we remember our sin against God and our relief from the burden of our sin. And it becomes a time of uh, humbleness. And that's why the word is written the way it is. But, and sadly, because man often feels his need to prove his dedication to God. I want you to hear that carefully because this really becomes the impetus for the whole meaning of the illustrations that Jesus is using here. Because man wants to prove his dedication from God to God because we're so outward in our thinking. He will usually do something outward or create some act or some tradition in order to prove his holiness. Which is why now... From the time of the Levitical law on once a year fasting, the Pharisees in Jesus' day have turned it into a fasting twice a week. Okay, so they have in their traditions gone from once a week, once a year, excuse me, and required it as a full-blown external way of showing the holiness of the heart. And so God says once, we're going to do it twice a week. And it became very traditional. But as things also go, fasting became more of a tradition. And that's what happens when things become really routine, right? They become just so normal that you forget the specialness of it or the uniqueness of it. Especially things that are external, when the heart is left out. And we kind of go through those things. We create things that were once established for something very meaningful, but then over time it becomes less and less important. And there are lots of things like that. I mean, you think about, as I was kind of alluding to my birthday there coming in June, uh, birthdays, as we grow older, become less and less exciting, right? They become more traditional, in their role, but when our babies are born and they're here for the first time, we're like, oh, this is so exciting, and we prepare for the day of their birth, and we go to the doctor, and we make sure we're doing all the things right because the big day's coming. But over time, tradition gives way to, oh, what do you want for your birthday? Right? Oh, sorry, I forgot. I mean, oh, I was going to get you something, but I didn't really know what to get you. You know, so we still acknowledge it, because, but it just becomes kind of a tradition. And so like that, like traditions, fasting then became a way of just elevating some people over others. Became kind of a uniqueness among the people, supposedly. In the same way, we've already seen praying did the same thing with the Hebrews, with the Pharisees. It took on that same kind of meeting. Instead of a way to humble themselves before God in prayer, Uh, turning, as God would say in Matthew 6, 6, Jesus would preach this on the Sermon on the Mount, when he'd say, when you pray, don't let everybody see you publicly praying, but go into your private quarters, basically, and pray to God who is in secret, who sees you in secret. But they turned it into a show of holiness. And we've been through some of that as we studied through the text there in Matthew 6. Now, As things also go, when those traditions and rituals turn into something external, it also grows into spiritual arrogance. And that's what we're seeing as well with the Pharisees. And so when they fasted, 
They publicly displayed themselves with signs outwardly of mourning. You remember us talking about this? They would show gloomy faces and change their clothing to show that they were in a state of mourning. But it was all for external show. And that's what Jesus was really calling them out on. So that they would not be promoting themselves as better than the other people. Which again was just all an external show. Even when they were giving alms to the poor, what they would do according to Matthew chapter 6, which is Jesus again calling them out on this, is that don't bring attention to yourself because the Pharisees would go into the market and they would blow trumpets of all things, saying we're about to do something for the poor people. Can you imagine doing this kind of thing? Imagine if we decided we were going to go through a time of fasting and we wanted the community to know and we would say, okay, we're going to come with painted faces and we're going to have all kinds of garments on of different sorts just to let the community, we parade through the town square back here and, and uh, everybody would know, oh, there's something unique going on with those people, right? Or we would blow the trumpet saying we're having a special time of prayer. Well, that became so normal to them and to the people around them that it was confusing for the disciples now as they encountered Jesus. And so they asked the question, why are you not doing this? They didn't get it, that it didn't make sense to them. So Jesus' answer to them is here in verse 15. Basically, and these are my words, but we'll read the verse again in just a second, but basically saying, your thinking has to change. This is the challenge from the Lord. Listen in verse 15. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? You know, Jesus was a master of giving a question in order to answer one of the questions that people were asking him. Now this particular illustration would have been known as well. Because immediately the disciples of John's mind would go to what a wedding was. Now, it was very different in the days that we have them now. You know, for us, a, a wedding that lasts a long time could be four, five, six hours, right? And by then, we're pretty exhausted and we're ready to go home. But in these days of Jesus, a wedding could last as long as seven days. That's a long party. That's a long wedding. But not only did the length of time uh, become longer or was longer then, but unlike today as well, the groomsmen who are the guys who basically just stand here and I'm looking from my angle as I look at you in a wedding and we've done many of them. The groomsmen stand over here and they're just kind of doing their duty and wearing their tuxes and they're all kind of like, okay, yeah, when is this going to be over, right? But in the days of the Hebrews, it was the groomsmen's job to handle all the festivities. That's a switch, isn't it? Ladies, you might like that, right? So I'm not going to have to worry about all of this and we'll get the guys to do that. Uh, and... The festivities would not be a time of sorrow. It'd be a time of just that. It's a festive time. And so there's a lot of rejoicing. Our friend is about to be married. And so we want to celebrate this. And so we're going to do a bunch of stuff, whatever that would be. I'm sure historically we could find out the answers to all of that. That they would want to make it a big celebration. And that's true of all the weddings that I've been to. All the weddings that I've officiated, I've not done one wedding where the bride and the groom come and stand and all the people are sitting there in tears because they can't believe this is happening, right? There's, I've never been to a wedding or done a wedding where the bride is saying, I can't believe I'm going through this. Why am I doing this? You know, I've never seen that. No, it's like, oh, it's so exciting. We want to get married and, and it's a great festive occasion. Well, <clears throat> so Jesus says basically, look guys, the groomsmen, they're not sad when the groom's with them. 
This is an exciting time. So just understand, I'm the groom in the story here. I'm the one that you should be excited about. So you don't need to be fasting because fasting is for mourning. That's for sad occasions. And that's a partial answer to their question. So basically, he's saying your thinking's wrong because your rituals that you've been following are not lining up with the spiritual reality of what it's supposed to be pointing to. That's a big problem. Meaning things like fasting or whatever it is are meaningless if they're not done for the right reasons. God never wants us to just go through some uh, routine just to accomplish the goal or at least feel like we're accomplishing the goal. And in this case, fasting is the subject. And he's basically saying, look, your thinking is all wrong. Fasting has no meaning if it's just done to make something happen that seems to be spiritual. And so we could add some other things to that. And we could say things like, coming to church is the same thing. It has no meaning if you don't really want to be here, right? I mean, there are lots of people. I can remember as a young person growing up and having to be told, all right, come on, get dressed. It's time to go to church. And I'm like, ugh, I just want to go fishing. It's a pretty day. I didn't want to go to church. And so God, I mean, if we're going to add this to it, we would say church has no meaning unless you're coming because you want to be there because God says this is a blessing, right? It's not supposed to be a curse. Church is not supposed to be an interruption in your week. It's supposed to be the highlight of your week as we come to worship the Lord, the one who has saved us. Let's just add this. How about the singing of songs? We're not to come here just to sing. We come here to prepare our hearts to worship. We come to listen to the songs that are being picked out for us and are being uh, led for us as types of songs that are not just traditional or songs that just sound good and give us warm fuzzies, but because they have some meaning that point us back to Christ. And why is that? Because God is all about the heart. In fact, just this morning, I hope you were paying attention to the words. That you weren't just standing up and singing a song because it was one, two, three, you're out. Right? In our singing even, in, our, in the way we conduct our church service, you yourselves can know and do know easily how traditional it becomes. Every one of you know that after the second song, you're going to turn around and you're going to sit down. Right? Hamp doesn't even have to tell you that anymore. You know that by routine. And so what happens? In our human mind, we become so conditioned to that kind of life that we just see it as something we we do instead of our heart really being engaged with it. This is what Jesus is saying in answer to their question about particularly fasting. Again, talking about singing, that's why our music should never be just about singing. The Lord would say, great, I hear you singing, but your heart is far from me. Your worship to me means nothing. It has no meaning because it's not really about me. You're just going through the motions. And it's never to be that way. Now, our singing should be a time when our hearts are prepared or being prepared for the message of God's word. Again, if you listen to the songs, you'll see that there's some pretty neat messages in there that are pointing us to Jesus. And we should be doing our best In everything that we do, I preached a message on this some time ago about how we should give God our 100% all the time. 
whatever area of ministry God has called us to. Not just because somebody's asked us to or because there's a need. You've heard the need doesn't justify the call, right? That's true. We should do whatever we're doing because our hearts are in it. Why? Because our Savior is the one we're pointing to. And so whatever we're doing should be just that. Putting our whole hearts into everything we do on a Sunday morning. So that's kind of the sub-point from my angle. But let's get back to the text now. Because in all of this, Jesus is pointing them also to the crucifixion. In other words, he says, the days are going to come where the bridegroom is going to be taken away from you. Now, they wouldn't have understood that. But he's saying to them, that's when you're going to need to fast. That would have been a trigger. They should have been able to say, oh, wait a minute. This is festive. That's not going to be festive, whatever he's talking about. He's pointing again to the crucifixion. Now, I was pausing in my mind here because as I think about the time of the crucifixion, I just wonder, and can you imagine what it must have been like for the disciples to live these amazing years with the Lord? Just three brief years, but amazing times as now, boy, the joy and the excitement is really being ramped up as the Lord is doing all these incredible miracles. And now he's pointing to something that seems to be sorrowful. And when the crucifixion actually came, can you imagine if you were one of them, I expect we all probably would have taken the same position, which is we got to hide. we got to get out of sight of the Romans. Because Peter had already been fingered a couple times by a couple people. You remember that? Hey, you're one of those people that had been walking with that Nazarene. And so there was a great fear working in their hearts. Now, we weren't there with Jesus in his day, but can you imagine for a moment the Holy Spirit being taken from us? I hope you think about this sometimes. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who's come to fill our hearts. Now, just to be clear, He's not going to leave us. And there's scripture to give us that understanding. In John 14, 26, I'll send another, Jesus says, and He'll bring to your remembrance all of these things. In John 14, 6, I'll send a comforter and He'll be in you. So the Holy Spirit's not leaving. But just imagine for a minute, if God said at this moment, the Holy Spirit is removed and God left the planet all hell literally would break loose. And I'm not meaning that in some uh, way other than the reality of all that is evil in this universe would be unleashed upon the earth. The only reason we have any semblance of life at all as we like it is because God is restraining evil through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that would be a horrible time. So all of this, basically, what I'm saying in these illustrations of my own here pointing back to Jesus' answer to their question, should be a way to create a new way of thinking in us. Our minds need to change, which when our minds change, the actions of our heart will begin to change, the outward parts. In other words, we've got it reversed a lot of times. We go through the traditional things and we forget about the heart. So let's talk about the acting. Look at verse 16. Jesus now is going to give a couple illustrations here to make his point. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Now, again, the meaning is not that apparent, at least according to what Jesus' point is. You, they would have understood the point of what he was saying, just like the sewing sisters would understand clearly what Jesus is saying here. So if you go back to what Jesus is saying, you'll, they'll know that um, Jesus is including now the beginning of what he's started last time, which is the whole subject of Matthew being saved. Matthew being brought into the inner fold, if you will. And so 
If you go back to that in your thinking and tie these two together, it starts to make a lot more sense why Jesus is using this illustration. He's kind of saying, hey, Matthew was a guy who was outside the scope of everything that people think should be a follower of God, right? He's the traitor. He's the bad guy. He's the enemy. But his heart has changed. And now he's a follower of mine. I've done a work in him. I've recreated him, as Scripture will say. And now Jesus is turning to the disciples, but more specifically, John's disciples, and he's saying, you too need to change. He's already been addressing the issue of his own disciples, but now John's disciples are going to need to think about some things from their own heart. In their case, again, the externals need to go to the internal. As your thinking changes, so will your actions. So the message simply is, in this section, completely is that part of the disciple of Jesus, or part of being a disciple of Jesus, is to let go of the routines and the stereotypes of all that we hold in our hearts dear to us and look to forgive those who have offended us. This is really still all in the same context of Matthew joining the crowd. It now becomes partly a message or more so a message of forgiveness. Even though the message seems to be, or the message starts out as being about fasting, the Lord's really just using that topic to address the subject of forgiveness. That he came to rescue all who will turn to him. It doesn't matter who they are. And that's a new way of thinking, which takes a new way of acting. I mean, how many times have you been around somebody and you've thought, boy, they don't know God. Or how many times have you been around, let's, let's use this illustration, how many times have you been around somebody and you've thought, I can't get along with that person, I can't be what I need to be for that person, and so we'll just have this grudge between us, and so life will just go the way it's going to go, and that's the way it'll be. Well, that's not what God wants. God wants us to be people who have changed inwardly. And he gives two illustrations to clarify that. This is this illustration of attachment. Every lady knows, and men you may know this too, but every day, in Jesus' day, clothing was made from materials that would shrink potentially. He says, you all know that you can't put a new patch on something that's old because when you do, the new patch is going to shrink when you wash it. And it's going to tear the fabric that's already stretched. Well, in the same way, he's saying, if you imagine me as the piece of the attached new cloth, you can't do that. I'm not going to be an attachment to your old ways of thinking. Everything in your thinking needs to change. The old self being your old self-righteous, ritualistic way of doing things. The new is the forgiveness and being cleansed from your sin. In other words, lots of people add Jesus to their life. Debbie and I were listening to something. I think she had the young people listen to this a couple weeks ago when she was teaching class for Scott, and that is it was a Christian counselor, and he was talking about how so many people start off with Jesus and want to end with Jesus. It's kind of like an entrance and an exit, but in the middle, they don't have anything to do with him. That's kind of what Jesus is saying here. I'm not going to be an addition to your life. I'm God. I've come to recreate you. I've come to change your thinking totally. And lots of people live this way. They think that, I've, you know, hey, I'll just, I'll just give my life to Jesus and, I'll, and I'll, just need, I'll call on him when I need him. But that's not the way it works. Similarly, when it comes to forgiving people, someone who's done something wrong to you, you say, well, I'm a follower of God, 
but I'm not willing to forgive the person. Well, that doesn't work. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus has already addressed that in his sermon. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Well, verse 45 says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, the inference there is that if you're not going to forgive your enemy, you're not going to forgive the one who's hurt you, you can't be. You're not a child of your Father because that's the way He is. And aren't we glad that He forgave us in the midst of our sin? If that's not the issue, people will keep themselves separated, as I was saying, or segregated from others who don't think and believe like they do, instead of doing what they can to help them see the truth, which is what Jesus was doing with the tax collector, with Matthew. Look, he's saying, I know Matthew is somebody that you don't like. I know he was outside of your world in a positive sense, but I've brought him in because I've changed him, and that's what needs to happen to you. At this particular point, I don't think the disciples had really been changed like that. And there's a lot of people who have professed to know the truth, but don't spend time trying to make things right. You remember the Pharisee who said he was glad he was not like the sinful publican and believed he was worshiping God with his actions. The whole thing is the same centered truth. But the real issue was he was ignoring the truth. And he was living only externally, which was predominantly he was not living forgiveness. He was not living the things that God had made true and clear in his word. And so to carry with you all kinds of feelings towards another person. But until you give, you can't, it's not going to work until you forgive them from your heart and let go of the pain and let Jesus deal with it. If so, that's going to be just Phariseeism. So Jesus wants the disciples to understand, listen, if you really want to be godly, you've got to be willing to reach out to those who are in need. And be the kind of person that he has called you to be. Even people who think they figured it out. Which in our day ends up being a large part of the church. There's a lot of people think that uh, the church is, should be just a place for people to, to reach people uh, who are not uh, together in their thinking and, and, are, and are lost in what's unnecessary. Here's a second illustration. An illustration of containment. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskin and both are preserved. Well, in Jesus' day, to preserve wine, they would put it into an animal skin. You've probably seen this before where they would take some animal and they would turn it inside out literally and they would fill it with the wine. They would sew the legs together and they would use the neck to pour out the wine. But over time, the skin would dry out and become brittle and the wine would ruin it. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was going to work. And so if you tried to put the new wine in the old skins, the skin would expand and it would cause a, a rupture and it would spill out. Well, Jesus is saying basically the Holy Spirit is not also an addition to your life and he's, uh, of a person's life. He he's comes in to make himself completely and perfectly known uh, about who he is. Can we just stop and pray a minute? <laughs> My mind is just not here this morning. I'm so sorry. Let's just pray. Father... Uh, I pray that you would help me to just think clearly here and to, uh, to deliver the message of truth, Lord, that Satan so desperately wants to destroy. Lord, we are a people after your own heart, and, and we just long for you to clarify for us truth and bring to the fullness uh, of, of everything that you want for us to the reality of who you are. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I guess the reality, beloved, is without belaboring the point here too much more, is that God wants a change in our hearts. He wants us to go from just the external to the internal and make sure that our hearts are being everything that they need to be. Okay? So we're going to end right there, and uh, we're just going to ask the Lord's blessings on our hearts as we close today. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness, and we thank you, Lord, that you are God and that you do all things well. Now, Lord, I pray that whoever is in the sound of my voice this morning would hear the truth and they would come to know you as God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.